You are listening to a message from Thrive Community Church, a church located in Southwest Florida. For more info, visit us at thrive-fl.org. I hope you've enjoyed this series. There has been so much that I've gained from it over um, the months that we've been in it. Um, And more appreciation for the Gospel of Mark than ever before. It's simple, and yet it's profound and deep. And Jesus is one radical dude. I mean, he really takes it on in this book. I'm not sure. Mark... uh, Mark Krieger here, one of our members, after the Gospel of Mark, right? Mark has said, and I think he's right, you know, if I was back at the time of Jesus, would I have actually followed him? Or would I have been in the groups that opposed him? And honestly, even those who followed him didn't really, (laughs) as we find out in the Gospels. And today we're going to find out much the same thing. It's really fascinating. We get more controversy here in Mark chapter 8. After all the miracles, after all the things that Jesus has done, now we get to a point where the disciples are warned by Jesus about some of the opposition Jesus has faced. So we're going to be uh, uh, studying now Mark chapter 8, verses 11 through 21. You can follow along in the U version of the Bible app. There's, um, the event is there, and it's up and ready to go. Um, but here we go. Mark 8, verse 11. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into the boat again, and went to the other side. Now, they had forgotten to bring bread, and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them, saying, watch out. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Have your eye, having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not understand? When I broke the five loaves with the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken feces did you take up? They said to him, Twelve. And the seven for the 4,000, how many basket full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, seven. And he said to them, do you not yet understand? Hmm. So we're seeing some hardened opposition, some unbelief, and some um, issues going on with all the people around him. You could almost say this text is really about Jesus saying, beware. Beware of who? Pharisees and Herod. In other words, do you know who that is? Religion and politics. Your two best friends, right? The things that we're told time and again not to discuss in polite company. But here we go. Jesus says, beware of the yeast or the leaven of the Pharisees and Herod. So today we're going to be looking at these three points. First of all, the leaven of the Pharisees and Herod, what in the world that is. Then the hardness of the disciples, and finally the work of Jesus. So Jesus warns about the leaven of the Pharisees and Herod. Odd, bad fellows, by the way. The Pharisees and Herod did not get along with each other. So what is it that Jesus is actually getting at? 
And right before this text, and you always have to take things in context, so the Pharisees came up to Jesus and asked for a sign to prove who Jesus was. Show us a sign. And Jesus is like, oh, come on. At this point in time, you're asking me for a sign? I've already given you millions of signs. I've healed, I've taught, I've spoken, I've cast out demons, and you're wanting a sign now? Yeah, Jesus wouldn't give him. They would have dismissed anything he did. They already had done it. And we had seen already in the Gospel of Mark, we had one where he, they basically said, oh, yeah, yeah, he does miracles, but he doesn't buy, you know, Beelzebul, the prince of demons. So they had already seen, and they hardened themselves against believing anything that he said or did. There is no sign he could have given them. It's exactly what actually comes up um, in one of the Psalms, Psalm 95, Moses and the children of Israel out in the wilderness. And, and it's just like of old. God has faced this hardness and this obstinacy and this unwilling to listen <laughs> for millennia. And so in Psalm 95, the psalmist says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day of Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers, look at this, put me to a test and put me to proof, basically show us a sign, God, though they had seen my work. Show us a sign, even though we've seen you already done miracle after miracle. I mean, the miracle they had seen, right? <laughs> they were alive. That would be a miracle in itself. They were in the wilderness. They had escaped Egypt, and the Egyptian army had been destroyed in the Red Sea. Isn't that enough of a sign to believe? No. For 40 years, God says, I loathe that generation and said, they are a people who go astray in their heart, and they have not known my ways. Therefore, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. So testing God, demanding a sign, <laughs> wanting basically, to be the judge and the jury, wanting to be in control, wanting to examine God, wanting to inspect God, wanting to get God to jump through my hoops. That's the human condition. The leaven of the Pharisees. You know, it's fascinating too, isn't it? The Pharisees are Bible-based. Totally Bible-based people. You know, watch out when people just say, yeah, we're Bible-based. Well, that's good, it ain't enough. It really is not enough. I know that. <laughs> A pastor saying the Bible's not. I know too many people who quote the Bible and use the Bible, and you do too, that have twisted the Bible and use it to their own advantage. They were tithers. They tried to keep the law. They were conscientious. But Jesus is saying in this passage, there's something sinister going on behind the scenes. Their whole idea of wanting a sign, they've really got hardened hearts against God in the first place. And what's up with Herod? What is he, why is he thrown in, right? Well, he's kind of the other side of what unbelief can look like. Um, Herod, the last time we saw him in this gospel, he was um, ordered the beheading of John the Baptist. Herod was a total political animal. The Pharisees wouldn't believe, even with miracles in front of them. Herod refused to believe in the face of the truth in the person of John the Baptist in front of him. Politics and religion often. 
not only strange bedfellows, but they often are in opposition to God. No matter how religious people are. And now yeast or leaven, as Jesus uses it here, is a well-known metaphor that is used a number of times. In some instances, Jesus uses the, the work of, and says, the kingdom of God is like leaven in a lump of dough. It slowly permeates the whole thing and changes it all. It's what he hopes that the gospel kingdom does in this world to transform society behind the scenes, slowly but surely, not out in front, not through uh, physical force as much as through just kind of an organic process. But often yeast, even from Jesus and in the New Testament, is a negative connotation in the metaphor or the parable that is used. It's, uh, it represents impurity, corruption, insincerity. And actually, this whole phrase, the yeast or the leaven of the Pharisees and of Herod, is not something we're just left um, to grab at like um, well, what does it all mean? And let me tell you, in preparing for this message, I have seen, and I've probably done it myself many times. I don't know if you realize this. Many, um, We're all susceptible to stuff as pastors. I don't know, Carl, if uh, you've ever done this, but I've often used um, a Bible text as my, my diving board. You know, basically, it's something I start with and I jump off of and then go in whatever direction I really want to preach at you, Right? It has so little to do with, I use the Bible text to go somewhere else, like a diving board. And um, so that can happen. And uh, this metaphor, I, when I read a number of sermons, is like, how did you get that from this text? <laughs> you know, you read people's, and it's like, what? We have, what's great, you know, the best commentary on the Bible is the Bible. <laughs> that is, Scripture often interprets Scripture, and this reference of yeast of the Pharisees comes up again and again, and actually it comes up in Luke chapter 12, and we find out what it is. It, it defines it. In the meantime, uh, Luke writes, when so many thousands of people had gathered together that they were trampling one another, he began to say to his disciples, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is, can we all say it together? Hypocrisy. Okay. Okay, now how did that tie in with what we just read in Mark? We'll figure that out. Now, here's another passage, Mark, Matthew 16, 12, where it's used. Then they understood he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of the bread, but the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. So that what they taught was hypocrisy. I don't know if you realize this, the Pharisees were great. And Jesus tells this, you're good at telling other people what to do. And then you don't do it yourself. Oh my gosh. Ouch. Telling people what to do, but not doing it yourself. Okay. <laughs> Um, maybe I'm going to be, uh, ooh, this, that's just too close to home. I don't like that. But the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they didn't do what they said. They told others how to live, but didn't live it themselves. They actually took God's word at times, and Jesus accuses them at different times of taking God's words and justifying their own actions with it. 
They prayed in public to be seen by others as pious and wonderful. They took their offerings in public in front of others to show how wonderfully generous they were. They would use God's law, and like he said, and you're going to claim this is God so you can't give it to your family when they ask you to help. Justifying yourself. So Jesus kind of called, not just kind of, he called them at times whitewashed tombs filled with dead men's bones. Boy, you look good on the outside, but on the inside, it's all dirty. And Herod, well, he wanted to look good too. I don't know if you realize that. He wanted to be a legitimate king when he wasn't. He wanted to be someone who looked like beneficial and wonderful, but he was underneath the surface conniving, power-hungry, and ruthless. So Pharisees used the law to justify themselves. Herod used politics to assert himself. The Sadducees, as mentioned in Matthew, they used tradition and their position to elevate themselves. But often, it's just hypocrisy that was being taught, modeled, and broadcast. M. Scott Peck wrote the book, The Road Less Traveled. He's probably best known for that. But another book that's worth a read is The People of the Lie. Right, Carl? Oh, boy, is right. And it hurts to read some of it. The People of the Lie. And in it, he says this, the wickedness of the evil is not committed directly but indirectly as part of this cover-up process. So the yeast of the Pharisees and of Herod is the cover-up, not the crime. It's the spin, it's the dodge, it's the propaganda, it's the gaslighting that is done. It's the blame-shifting. That's what Jesus is really saying be aware of. And these tendencies show the real issue behind it. Scott Peck goes on and says, the central defect of evil is not the sin, but the refusal to acknowledge it. The people of the lie who buy into their own spin is the problem. So at first, they're trying to cover up so they look good in front of other people, but slowly but surely, they start believing it themselves. It's called self-deception. Self-deception. As Peck states, they are characterized by their absolute refusal to tolerate the sense of their own sinfulness. This is pretty straightforward stuff in the Bible. Um, we've said it before here. I've shared this Bible passage before. In 1 John, it says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. We're not deceiving anybody else. We deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. That's the yeast. Self-deception, the hardness that comes from, I'm not really that bad. Those people are the real bad people. <laughs> In politics, you've heard it a million times. I know you have. How a politician will point the finger at the other party. They'll claim, hey, I'm the one that can fix it. I'm the one who's going to be the solution. Just vote for me for my party, my cause, and we're going to fix everything. Those people, they're going to destroy it all. You know, and this isn't just on an individual basis. It can be kind of national as well. And I'm sorry, to, this is where I may be stepping at it. 
But there has been a movement, and it's bothered me. I, I mean, I love this country. I truly am grateful for this country. We're going to celebrate in just uh, a short time, uh, July 4th again. The greatness of this country, though, that I grew up with and understood is the fact that I don't have to have this country as the center of my life and my all-being and my identity. In fact, we said in the Declaration of Independence that a life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, which was another way of saying, you in this country are free to pursue something else as your great good. The government does not have to be your end-all and be-all. The nation is not the center of who you are. We're going to give you the freedom, limit ourselves to give you the freedom to have something else like your faith as a center. That's been the great thing about the United States. And what I've seen is almost this tendency now that we have to, or people have, made their national identity their religion. Have you noticed some of that? And if you don't say, if you don't, if you don't say America is the greatest and best and absolute, no, per, no imperfections, uh, maybe a little, but not, you know, that we are the absolute solution to everything, then you're not patriotic. I thought patriotism was all about realizing, yes, thank you, God, for this nation, but I've got something even greater to pursue. You know, um, I think that's what they realized. And I'm thankful to be here. Today, we not only celebrate Father's Day, this is Juneteenth, which, honestly, I didn't even know about just a, until a couple of years ago. But Juneteenth is the date in 1865 when the last enslaved people in the United States in Galveston, Texas, were finally given the declaration two and a half years after the Emancipation Proclamation that they were actually freed. And I think we have to not only celebrate that it finally got to everyone, but to realize that that is not a perfect place in the history of America, right? And it's okay. It's okay. We don't need to elevate ourselves or justify ourselves or treat our nation as the end all and be all. We can be thankful for it. And as even I think the Constitution says, that we're here to form a more perfect union, not a perfect union. <laughs> so yeah, the yeast of Herod can happen, as well as the leaven of the Pharisees in the church. You've seen it before. It's as if a, an institution, an organization, a pastor, a church itself says, we are the end all and be all. You know, without us here, look, God wouldn't be able to. We are indispensable in God's plan. And the church becomes a bit on the self-righteous side at the same time as becoming very judgmental of those outside of it. Have you ever noticed that? Yeah, ouch. Uh, Paul Zoll says that's a huge issue within Christianity itself. In his book, Grace in Practice, he writes that my wife and I could not begin to number the lapsed Roman Catholics and lapsed evangelicals we've known who have bailed out of Christianity on the account of one word, 
judgment. It always comes back to that two-syllable word. If you were to interview the millions of people who feel they've left Christianity, although they were brought up in it, you would find the one two-syllable word judgment tops the list of their objections to it. It tops it by a mile. So we see the judgmentalism of the Pharisees, and we also see that it is so easy to fall into it when we start to justify ourselves, we deceive ourselves that we're not as bad as those people, and then we become so judgmental of other people. And boy, people want to walk away from that time and again. So the self-righteousness of religion, the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees, um, the self-deception somehow, watch out, Jesus says. Now, it was fascinating when I was studying this text, um, I was going like, huh, I wonder what the Pharisees were really thinking about when it comes to their, themselves and sin in general. And so I went to a website and I found a number of responses from Reformed to ultra-Orthodox Jewish rabbis who looked at the idea of sin and had different parts to it. What's amazing to me is how they responded and minimized sin. Didn't think it was that big of a deal. Huh. So, for instance, a rabbi Freeman, an Orthodox rabbi, wrote this. What if we fail? Then we must write our own script to resolve the dissonance we've created. Done right, the music becomes even more beautiful. Return out of love, says Rabbi Shimon, and your sins become merits. Everything must be done in love. So you can fix it. And another rabbi wrote this, one major difference between Judaism and Christianity is that Judaism does not perceive the journey back to God as so arduous and steep that it requires the aid of a redemptive savior. The journey to Canaan may have taken us 40 years, but the journey back to God is as close as your ear is to your mouth. There were more. And I was surprised. And what, this is not just like in rabbinical Judaism. This is not just the Pharisees. This is a human tendency that somehow we believe our human condition is not that bad. And I can kind of fix it. It's, it's a fixable. The tendency towards self-deception is just throughout religion. You know what was fascinating, I've, I've, and I think I brought this up before, I've taught world religions at FGCU a few years now, and the more and more I study it, the more and more I see the self-deception as part of the religious landscape. Specifically, I'm amazed time and again is how in many systems of uh, world religions, there's more faith in my human potential and my human ability to accomplish and get close to God or the divine or the perfect that I just go through the method again and again and again and I'll get there. There's more faith in human beings than in God or the divine. It's so easy to fall into this. Sin is something that we think that we have the potential to overcome. Well, it's not that bad. Or they're worse than us. And Jesus says, beware of that leaven that somehow you think you are so, you're somehow better than. And why does he say it to his disciples? 
When he says it to his disciples, we find out <laughs> it's already there. They too. Now it comes up as the hardness of the disciples. And Jesus says to them after he's talked to them about the leaven of the Pharisees and of Herod, he says, why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? Do you not remember? The difference between the Pharisees and Herod and the disciples of Jesus? Not much. Ouch. They were caught, too, in the assuming that they, they understood what's going on. They've got it together. They're not that bad. And their hearts were actually hardened from Jesus even teaching them anything. The disciples had seen the miracles. They've been even part of the miracles. They had helped feed the 5,000 and saw what Jesus did there. And then earlier in the Gospel of Mark, uh, in chapter 8 here, he feeds the 4,000 in an area called the Decapolis, and they had seen that too, and yet their hearts were still hardened. They didn't understand the miracles in front of them or who they were dealing with. And all they got caught up now is to blame who in the boat didn't bring enough bread. So we can point our fingers at those Pharisees, those religious people, and those politicians, and those other people out there, all we want. But the problem is that we as disciples have hardened hearts too. Paul saw this himself. He uses even the example of leaven in, of all places, the church in Corinth. And he says to them, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. And then he goes on later in this chapter, or in chapter 8, if anyone imagines he knows something he doesn't yet know as he ought to know, the <laughs> Corinthian Christians were full of themselves and full of a lot of knowledge, and they didn't realize they had hardened hearts as well. They had allowed this self-deception of, well, I'm not that bad. I'm better than. I can pull one off. I can fake it till I make it. So how in the world are we going to ever get out of this conundrum? And that's where the work of Jesus comes in here. As Jesus said, as, as exasperated as he was with the Pharisees and with the Herodians and the people who followed Herod and the politicians and the Sadducees and all these different groups in his day, even his own disciples, <laughs> he turns to them and they don't get it either. And you could say very clearly that religion and politics killed Jesus. That's what killed him. You can also say that human hypocrisy is what nailed him to the cross. And at the cross, we see the extent of our human condition and the fullness of what it's really like. We did our worst, and Jesus gives his best. We claim moral superiority all the while we are being the most inhumane to the most innocent of all victims. 
We defy what God says and will refuse to believe even when the proofs are given us in front of us and God's truth is spoken to us. And the work of Jesus is what we need to see. He gives his life. Literally, he gives his very life to you and to me. He loves us in the face of our hate. He forgives us in the face of vengeance and violence around him. He accepts pain and agony. He is the redeemer we need. And only in the light of that cross, in the light of his life, is my heart ever going to be softened when he accepts and puts up with and carries along and loves his disciples who don't get it. It's the only thing that really changes us. It's only God's grace. The only way to be aware and avoid the leaven of the Pharisees and Herod of politics and religion is by embracing Jesus. Any human attempt to remove our own hypocrisy only results in another layer of self-deception. Oh, look, I'm, look at how much better I am then. Look what I've done now. <laughs> There's always another layer. You know, Christians, here's the, here's the reality, and I know it's, um, we cannot and we do not, if we are truly orthodox in our faith, claim to be better than anyone else in this world. When we see the hypocrisy of religion or politics, we can't say, oh my goodness, that's so terrible. Rather, I think when we see anything, it just grieves us more that we see our human condition, what we're all really like. But we also then celebrate how Christ is the one who brings the truth into light. As Paul said then in that passage in 2 Corinthians, let us therefore celebrate the festival not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. The antidote to hypocrisy, as Paul states here, is that word sincerity. And what was fascinating when I looked up this word, what does sincerity mean? We see this Greek word, and it says, Elekrineia. And Eli is from Helios, which is the sun. And Krineia is judgment. It's basically being judged in the light of day. In other words, exposed to the light. It's basically judged in the light of the S-O-N, sun. In his light, his truth, his love. Doesn't mean we're better. Actually, we're just open, honest, and as the next series we're going to talk about, vulnerable. When you're exposed to the light, you're able to be who you really are and see what that really looks like. It doesn't mean we're perfect. We're just transparent or sincere, which is, yep, boy, I've blown it. Boy, isn't God good. And the only way I can do that is because it's the light of Jesus Christ. It's because of his love and his mercy and grace that you can ever come to terms with your own sinfulness. By grace, we are saved. By grace, we can be honest to God. Simply Jesus, 
means we can be simply ourselves. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for this day. And uh, we thank you, Lord, Heavenly Father. You've loved us so much that you sent your son to die for us. And everyone who believes in him has eternal life. Lord, even that faith is something we would not have unless your spirit moved us, unless you worked in us, as, unless you actually initiated the whole thing. Lord Jesus, we see the hardness that your own disciples had after they had been with you for so long. We see what the religious leaders were like and how they were filled with hypocrisy and self-deception and how Herod played the game. And we see in our day, Lord, <laughs> all the games, all the games that people play, Lord, to cover up, to hide from the truth. If we say we have no sin, we're not deceiving you or we, hardly, we can't really deceive others, not for long. We only are deceiving ourselves and the truth is in us, but we confess our sin. And you are faithful and just and forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Thank you, Jesus, that we can live in the light of the sun, that we can let you judge us. And you judged us by being judged yourself, Lord Jesus, taking our condemnation on yourself and loving us completely by pouring out your life. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for that. Help us to now live not better than anyone else, Lord, but open and honest, sharing you, Lord, with as much sincerity as possible, but also never focused on ourselves, but focused and looking to you, Lord Jesus. Thank you this day, Lord, uh, for Father's Day. We celebrate our fathers and the gifts they have been to us. And no father here, as we know, we have no, nowhere near been the kind of father, oh God, you've been to us. We do ask that, Lord, that you help us to engender, to build up, to encourage. Forgive us when we have failed, Lord God, and use us to still extend your kingdom and your work and to model a way of humility, a way of courage, a way of service, Lord, to our families and loved ones. Lord God, we um, lift up to you Bob Beverly today. We thank you that he is home from the hospital. We pray, Lord, that you would guide Tampa General and him and the decisions ahead, whether uh, transplant or whatever next steps there will be. We pray for those, Lord, now, uh, this day that need your healing touch, many in our ministry. Um, we just lift them all to you this day, confident, Lord, you are with us. We ask, Lord, uh, that you help us to not put anything in our lives before you. That our own <laughs> performance, our own viewpoints are not as important, Lord Jesus, as your word and your truth. You know, you warn us, Lord, to beware, to not harden our hearts, and yet so often we have. We thank you, Lord, that you continue to work your will to soften our hearts and bring us closer to you. And thank you this day, Lord Jesus, that you will come to us again to offer yourself openly and vulnerably 
and we pray our hearts would be softened to receive you as we receive the Lord's Supper, that you would hear us, that we would be yours, that um, we would truly live in the light of your grace. All this we lift up to you this day, Lord Jesus, in your precious name.